there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Santiago, did you see the article floating around about the homeless camp built out in Waterloo? I did see that. I kind of raged on it a little bit on Twitter. Actually, I wasn't too hard on it, but there was a lot of back and forth about a homeless camp. I'll fill the audience in. (laughs) 50 small shelters, we're talking like 107 square feet each, were built out near Waterloo, Ontario. Now, these 50 small shelters, they each house one person. They form like a rough square around a perimeter fence. In the middle is a kind of common building. And there's some open space around that building. And by open space, we mean dirt. I was trying to be fair. The photo we're seeing was taken in April. So some of the feedback I've seen is like there is some grass now, but... Yeah, when folks see the visual, it's not going to be pretty. I'm trying to be fair at the intro, though. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, so this common building has a washroom, laundry, a common space. The place will be staffed. It'll have security and, and like a social worker. The region built it. They spent all the money there. It costs $2.4 million to build. I'm not sure what it's going to cost to operate or what's kind of involved there, but it's already at capacity. It just opened in the summer. And uh, and that's not a surprise considering the region of Waterloo has a approximate unhoused population of just over a thousand people. We're talking about Waterloo's just 120,000 people that live there. So that's an astonishing number. Now, why are we talking about this? Seems like a good thing. And if you're going to compare that to living in a tent come winter... For 50 people, this is certainly an improvement. But we wouldn't be talking about this if we didn't have something critical to say about it as well. What's the first thing that came to your mind when you saw it, Santiago? Oh, there are none. You need to take a service road to get there. And the article tells you, we'll link that as well. It is 12 minutes walk with no sidewalks to the nearest bus stop. This is out in a rural part outside of the city of Waterloo and like cornfields, farmers fields. Yeah. There's nothing. You know what it is near? A fucking dump and waste and water services. So it's ridiculous. Obviously, that's a problem. But like it it seems like something that the city can sell as, look, we're doing something. This is a solution. These are more humane conditions. But. What is it actually addressing here, you know? Because when you when you look at this and you look at how it's like in the middle of nowhere, you ask like, okay, what what comes next? Because it doesn't seem like somewhere where people can work out of, you know, like if people are are trying to get jobs or not being in complete isolation, you know, like it's so far away from anything that like it's more of just 
I mean, it's it's a place to sleep, but it's hiding away the problem and it's putting it out of sight, out of mind. And just, you know, you get to like wash your hands from it and say, like, we're being humane, but it's not really addressing the issue at all. Let me jump in here and just remind folks, Waterloo was actually the region that lost a recent court case where a judge had ruled they couldn't evict an encampment that had been set up in one of their city parks because they did not have adequate shelter space. And it was absolutely inhumane for them, and I guess against their rights, to evict them if they knowingly didn't have anywhere else to go. Whether this serves as a landmark, we've talked about that on the show before, you know, that's still to be said. It was specific to the conditions in Waterloo. So certainly it can be seen as a way for Waterloo to say they have done something. You know, they have, I wouldn't say housed, they've sheltered 50 of the over 1,000 mm-hmm. people there. You know, you say that um, it's near, it's beside a dump, right? Yeah. It, it does kind of remind me the whole thing of rural dumps, you know, like the, like the one hut in the middle making me think of like the, the hut where people work and like, all the different containers where you go and you like, talk, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I almost thought they were shipping containers. And for all I know, they could, they're actually smaller than a shipping container. You're talking about just 10 by 10. And you, you can, give, given that court case, I feel like you can kind of see the thought process that went in, into the decision. It's like, oh, okay, so we cannot evict the encampment. So what are we going to do? Let's build an encampment put it far away from where people have to actually see it you know make it as minimally acceptable as possible and then nobody can hold anything against us that's that's the kind of thought process that leads to making this as opposed to how do we actually help find long-term permanent solutions for this crisis how do we make sure that people are able to not just survive but actually live if that was the way that they were thinking if they were if their priorities was actually about people's lives and not just not being criticized and superficially addressing the issue they would never have done this the way that they have done it this is clearly not no a compassionate solution no and this isn't just whipped up like this took a lot of planning and surely there was input. And, I, you know, I know that the region is limited to what land it has, but don't tell me they didn't have something closer or within the city limits where they could put this exact same prison-like compound, at least within city limits. So there were people on my feed, some comrades, that had lived experience with homelessness. And, you know, they made the inarguable point that this is a million times better than freezing to death in the winter, which is coming. And they also made note, and you can read this in the article, and it's part of Waterloo's kind of rationale behind putting it so far out of town. That was purposeful. They did that, and there's no visitors allowed here either. Couples can come, people's pets can come, but the couples have to live in separate shelters. So I don't really Mm. know how couples are allowed. But either way, but no visitors allowed. And this was a conscious decision. And they say it's to remove folks who are trying to rebuild their lives from negative influences. But I feel like, and although that that is likely true for people, that that is likely people's lived experience, 
a lot of this is just reinforcing really negative stereotypes about unhoused people, like that other unhoused people are unsafe to be around and that that there is no homeless community, right? That it is just a bunch of individuals struggling for one another. And from what we've seen in a lot of the encampments, that's not necessarily the case. But yeah, this isolation was done purposefully and they've reinforced that by not allowing visitors so this is not ideal in the same way even building ghettos within a city limits is not ideal to isolate folks based on their income like to create communities that are essentially structured around poverty mm-hmm. is not how we strengthen our communities as a whole like that is a recipe for disaster i just want to like take a moment to address like that that possible criticism right we're not here to give credit to half solutions because we know that if they actually had the the will to solve this issue with permanent long-term solutions that would be easily done easily done we know that there is no good enough when it comes to people's lives this is not good enough People not freezing to death is not the accomplishment that they think it is. It is the bare fucking minimum. It is. And like to the folks that though will say, you know, we can't wait, like people will die this winter on the street, right? We can't wait. But this is a model that they're setting moving forward. The region of Waterloo has said so. Other regions have come to look at it. It isn't just this quick short-term fix. Yes, we need public housing. We'll get into that later. Absolutely need public housing. We know that's far off, though. That's not going to save anybody this winter. But there are solutions that could be right now. Like There have been cities who have seized properties, old hotels, motels. How many condo towers exist, right? Maybe not in the city of Waterloo. There are buildings that and steps that can be taken to put people in much more adequate shelter right now. And they're choosing not to. They're choosing on creating this model that we have seen before in the fucking 1930s. Twitter is like such a source of pain and frustration, but sometimes you get really good tidbits of knowledge from the folks that you interact with. They reminded me of Hoovervilles. Mm-hmm. Hoovervilles were built in the 30s, you know, the dirty 30s, were deep in depression in the United States for the most part. They were outside of urban centers. Some of these things got as big as like 15,000 people, right? The difference between those and what you're seeing out in Waterloo is those people built that for themselves. Then they ran it for themselves. You understand? It was a community thing. Yes, it was awful that they had to live out there and build their own shanties and weren't in the city and were ostracized and isolated in that way. But it was at least a self-initiative. They started to live off the grid and everyone was okay with that until they actually started to do well. They actually, some of them elected mayors. And then of course, most of them were destroyed by the U.S. Army. Like the issues we see today, even back then, like 30% of the people that were living in these Hoovervilles all outside American cities were predominantly, like we're talking 30% of them were racialized and much of the rest of them were then white immigrants or veterans coming home from the World War. So people who have been completely marginalized, who deserve shelter, were given none. And then that's what they did. But they're trying to replicate that on purpose and almost like state driven exile. You know, they're not even hiding mm-hmm. it anymore. It was like, yeah, this is this is good enough. It looks like a prison, though. That's another one of those narratives that I feel like it reinforces 
not just that these folks don't belong in our community, but that they are associated with crime. Like there's a security guard and a perimeter fence and, you know, prisons are often out in the middle of nowhere to prevent escape. You know, the fact that they have to walk 12 minutes to, just to get to a bus to take them to anywhere is almost like they don't want them to leave. And I mean, should go without saying, but there's a great deal of the uh, of people who are unhoused are also disabled. Absolutely. Right. So that that 12 minute walk, 12 minute walk for who, you know? And in what weather? And so you mentioned like maybe they're trying to go in and get a job. Maybe they want to visit family. Maybe they the city of Waterloo provides services that they what now have to go through great lengths to access. Apparently there'll be a shuttle, but I don't know what the availability is going to be like that. They talked about a shuttle being available for people to get to appointments. So there's definitely no freedom of movement. This just can't be the model moving forward. And I love that you brought up that because people shit on us a lot. I complain a lot on Twitter, right? Like it seems like I never have anything good to say and our rants can be like that as well. But you're absolutely right. You said what I'm feeling. Like I'm not here. We're not here to sell half measures. I understand the need to celebrate victories. I am needed to remind myself of that over and over again. I get it. But that's not really what this is, right? I'm here to radicalize folks, if that's what you want to call it, to push for more, always, never to be satisfied until it's all done. And I think when we spend too much time being satisfied with these half measures, we lose track. And not just that, when they are half measures that reinforce really bad ideology, you know, like means testing and all these other things that sneak their way into supposedly good legislation, they actually take us step back in the long term. If we are now trending to just sending everybody who lives on the street out into the farmland, into these shanty towns, surely this is a bad thing long term. Surely, surely this is actually a negative. Even if lives are saved, this can't, if this sets a trend for, for cities across Canada, we have a problem. We know 50 people now have like a roof over their head, but there are some serious issues there. Yeah. And like at the end of the day, yeah, survival's a step for sure. But for me, I'm not motivated by simply surviving. Capitalism sucks. People are, for the most, I mean, for the most part, surviving through it. But we we fight because it's about a little bit more than just survival, right? It's about like what we want our lives and the lives of others to be, you know, whether or not we are subject to exploitation, whether or not... We have like the opportunity to to live life. That's something that everybody deserves. And it's like just just because people are now going from maybe not surviving the winter to probably surviving the winter. But we know like housing is not the only the only thing that kills people. Yeah, yeah it's not the only thing that kills people here. That's just that's just not enough. Like I just living life is not enough you know like it's i gotta i gotta step in though and just point out that is a bit of a privileged position for us to take right we will acknowledge that for somebody that is actually every single day fighting to survive then that is a victory that's a huge victory like i don't ever think i won't i mean i have dark moments but i don't think that I won't survive to the next day. I don't have to worry about where my food comes from. And so, or 
or whether it will rain on me or snow on me or whether I'll be exposed to people. Because one one thing I do, I will give credit to is, and we've brought it up on the show when we had Diane Mac- McNally on talking about the increased amount of hatred and violence that is visited on the unhoused population, you know, by typically housed folk. They're being tormented and harassed and sometimes attacked that this would protect them. But so would an apartment building. So would a home. And that's the point. Like, action is being taken here. We're just asking for it to be better action. Yeah. We're not telling them to, hey, this isn't enough, so don't do anything at all and let things keep... You know, we're saying, hey, good, you're doing something. But how about you do something that will actually solve problems long term and you do it better? And you can do that just as quickly because, you know, like we said, the city does have power to seize properties they do and and, and honestly I, like i'm not gonna I, like that's what i want i want them to be seizing properties you know like here in toronto i've seen like many properties be seized for the, the the ontario line you know like they can do it for a subway let's do it for people's lives we, we there are solutions here you want an immediate tomorrow solution seize property and put people and like give people better housing were, were they actually around civilization as opposed to uh, having to walk 14 minutes or whatever it was to a bus stop. But also, you don't get to walk on a sidewalk because there is no sidewalk. That's quite a... Looking at the road, because I have it right in front of me, it looks like, you know, like a higher speed road and you start thinking of winters and ice and all these things like that's... No, they don't want them to to, to go back and forth to the city. There might be a, a shuttle to take them to appointments, but there's nothing gives you the impression that they want these people integrated with the community at all. They're supposed to rebuild their lives out in the middle of nowhere because they have a laundry machine and uh, washrooms, which are huge. Don't get me wrong. If you are living on the street, being able to use the washroom without like there's no public washrooms anymore. This this is a huge obstacle. It leads to health issues and a lack of dignity. This is huge for people who didn't have that. But there's no way you're rebuilding your life in that situation. Mm -hmm. That is a, that is an extrication from society. Now, as someone who lives in a city, don't have the most experience. This this kind of reminds me of the conditions it, that you see sometimes. In, and uh, like I said, I'm not the most familiar, but with some indigenous reserves, right, where it's quite cut off and there is shelter. But what are the lives of the people there like? I mean... We don't have to explain to people. We know it's the rates of the rates of suicide, the rates of health complications like diabetes. You know, people may be housed, but yeah, there's nothing in any of the information that I could pull up that talks of further supports besides a security guard and a social worker on staff. Whether food or clothing or other basic necessities will will be provided like there's just no idea of any of those so yeah you're right like there's just no telling what kind of life that will be but let's go from half measures to no measures at all (laughs) so still in an attempt to address the housing crisis apparently the Liberals came up with a little affordability plan. It's a doozy. Can't even go over this without kind of laughing. The first part that we're not even going to spend much time on is that he's going to gather the leaders of to address the rising cost of food. He, he's going to call in Walmart, Loblaws, Metro, Empire and um, Costco, and he's going to ask them to come together 
and come up with a plan to address the food crisis. This is their fucking plan. They already got together and came up with this plan to price us out of food. They got together many years ago and came up with a plan to fix our bread prices. Why putting all of these people in the room together to come up with another plan with these really vague threats if they don't? I've never heard something so absurd in my life. I feel like we already went through that. We have an episode on when Galen got up in front of everybody and lied and tried to explain away their profits. But the second part of the plan deals with housing. So it's relevant to our discussion today. Santiago, they're going to, you know what they're going to do? You know, you know how we're going to solve the housing crisis? How? We're going to make developers more money. So the GST is going to be removed from new builds of apartment buildings. Sorry, that's it. That's the plan. I, I don't know if you were waiting for more there, but that's it. I don't have any more notes. Oh, no, it gets better. Sorry. Trudeau and all the lobbyists involved, you know, the usual suspects, the Taxpayers Federation and the construction industry, they want provinces, some of them are doing this, to remove the sales tax as well. And, and... They want municipalities to take away the development levies. So they want to cut off all of these sources of revenue. I don't have the numbers as to what we draw in because nobody builds apartment buildings anymore. So the idea is to incentivize the building of apartments. I mean, another tax break for the rich is what we have, yeah? Yeah, I thought I thought that uh, I wouldn't have to keep saying in 2023 that trickle-down economics doesn't work. But you do. But this is just trickle-down economics again. You know, it's it's like, oh, great, you know, 50 years and we're still doing the same thing because that definitely worked for the past five decades. Good to see that we're learning from our mistakes. And, like, there's just no way... Not even in just like, oh, you know, they never pass on savings to us because they never do, right? Tax breaks for the rich never come down to us. Like, our prices don't get cheaper. It's the opposite. It is the opposite. It's the opposite. But it's it... actually impossible for this to be passed on to us as renters. And I'll tell you why. So why do we have to incentivize developers to make apartment buildings? Because they just want to build condos. Why do they want to build condos? Condos don't have any long-term work or costs associated to developers. They build them. After a couple years, they hand them over to the condo corp. The developer's done. They're not reaping any more profit. Developers don't charge rent. They can't pass the savings on to renters. They're not going to be renting out those buildings, the same people who are building them. So the, the cost absolutely can't be passed on. It's, it's just, it's not even feasible. So Apparently, by making it cheaper, more people will build apartment buildings. But even experts are telling us this will not, even a higher supply of apartment buildings five years from now, because nothing's going to happen immediately, is not going to help anybody now, obviously. But it's not really a supply problem either, right? We need rent controls. We need protections for tenants to not be evicted. That's large part what's putting people on the street, not the lack of supply, and surely not the lack of profits being made by developers at this point. Anyone in Ontario knows that to be true. No, no, and I mean I am of the belief that like yeah we could we could use more supply in a way. And the reason I say that is just because what we have in terms of apartment buildings 
um, at least, you know, my experience in Toronto is, is inadequate. You know, we have like units that are designed to, to maximize the profits of landlords and developers without actually being long-term livable spaces. You know, I want to see us treat vertical density as something where like we're still building conditions where people can like grow their lives you know and i say that from experience you know i come from a city nine million now bogota something like that ridiculous and it's a city limited geographically by being surrounded by mountains on a plateau and it's like the third highest altitude city in the world we have logistical issues in bogota (laughs) and yet we managed to 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 build enough buildings uh i mean i'm not gonna say bogota has solved this issue because we haven't but what i'm saying is we have density and i've seen the units there and i've seen that they're much more like houses than what we have here where it's like you see in toronto like a lot of these new buildings they do that stupid thing where instead of having like a proper bedroom they have like these sliding corner glass things that like so it's inset and it had and you're like where where do I put a living room? It's like oh you can put a sofa here in front of your kitchen and where do you put a family? Like yeah. none of these units are like our family units either. The bedroom is maybe the size of a, a king bed. If you were to put like a a, a, a double bed in there, that's going to take up like the vast majority of the bedroom space. Maybe you can put a dresser. Like right outside, you have like a kitchen on one side of the wall uh, and a wall and that wall is where you're supposed to put a sofa. And so like that's your living space. And maybe you have like a a balcony that's like the size of a dining table. And that's and that's your apartment to try and visualize. And it's extremely narrow. And that's it. That's what we're talking about is being built in Toronto right now. Because they're trying to maximize how many units they're putting out. And for the record, those are being sold for like three, four hundred, at least probably closer to four hundred thousand dollars nowadays. Yeah, those are mostly condos, yeah. right? Like we haven't built apartment buildings since like the 70s. What would that have like? I mean, for, for that price is what people used to buy freaking giant houses. So that's that's what we're doing here in Toronto. So when I say like I would want to see more supply, it's because that's bullshit and people deserve better housing than that and i know and i know it's possible but we're just not seeing it and there's there's no will to this because that's not how you make them if you were to build a place that's not completely optimized to maximizing your profit yeah i get it like you're not gonna make as much money but that's why capitalism isn't going to solve the housing crisis because housing people isn't about making the most amount of money. It's about creating spaces where people can fucking live their lives. Like, OK, well, short of short of a revolution, though, we can build public housing under the current so-called democratic government. But we don't. We won't. I mean, there is a little bit. of Let's share a bright moment. The city of London, Ontario, will be building public housing. I, it's just like 2000 units. But. The feds are finally putting some money towards public housing. We are going to say that municipalities are actually going to build housing. And that's when you can actually get units geared towards the community if it's done right, where there are family units, where it's actually affordable. Because if you look at the definition of affordable, so when the politicians get up there and they say, okay, the units are going to be built and don't worry, 10% of them are going to be affordable, they're not even That in itself is a victory. So when you say and hear affordable housing, keep in mind that that affordable tag is completely outdated 
and not realistic. So, and we know so many Canadians are spending over a third, well over a third now, some spending up to 60% of their income on shelter. And so for the Liberals to come out of their caucus retreat and say that these two things are some sort of affordability plan makes no sense because the only thing it's making more affordable is for developers to build apartment buildings. That's it. There's no guarantee that those units will be affordable, suitable, you know. And so we're back to the need for more public housing that is driven by the people on the ground and funded by predominantly the provincial and and federal governments. Because the municipalities, they can't afford this shit. Even the feds are making London fork up a lot of the cash to build the units that they're going to do. And frankly, they can't afford that. Limited revenue streams and how they have to rely on developer levies that are supposed to be waived in these circumstances is just it's, it's unrealistic that that's even sustainable to do even public housing in that way. The provinces seem hopeless on this issue completely. And Lord knows if Pierre and his friends get in that even the funds that we're seeing flow out to municipalities like London are going to stop and all we're going to be left with is tax-free builds for developers. I don't, nobody needs reminding this, but tax dollars pay for our health care and our education and, you know, a lot of other things that we absolutely don't need because the government misspends them, but they still do support the critical services. So on top of this not doing anything for the housing crisis, it's going to eat into the revenue stream that we need. And no, it's not generally a revenue problem. It's a spending problem on on stupid shit like war, but this is going to hurt, right? They're going to use this as an excuse. This is going to hit municipalities hard as well if they're expected to drop development levies. Like, they're going to be struggling. It's also worth, like, just just because, like, I know it's obvious, but, like, we know what the narrative is going to be as we, like, start to see the consequences of all of this, right? Um, Just to bring up, like, I don't know why, but it just reminded me of, like, the issue of, like, because you mentioned, you know, healthcare, right? 11,000 people have died waiting for access to, like, scans and healthcare and stuff in, in the past year in Ontario. And when I was seeing, like, those articles, you know, all the comments are like, well, this is the problem with public healthcare. It's like, no, this is the problem with not investing in your public healthcare and cutting your public healthcare. We know the narrative. We know how this works. And it's, it's the same thing happening here with with public and, and private housing and it's just not going to create those long-term solutions to keep cutting and like and when we say that they're like one aspect of this we haven't met, like mentioned yet is the fact that these uh, tax breaks don't apply to cooperative housing. Oh yes, how could I forget that? Which is like very obvious about what their intentions are because they're just looking to keep making more and more money because they need to have that infinite growth but there's nowhere else to go there's nowhere else to grow so it's very obvious why they're doing this they know they know when they do this that this is not a solution they're not doing this because they believe in the free market these assholes don't believe in the free market what they believe in is making money now and they know that this is just a way to make more money off of a crisis will sell and that people are going to buy their free market solutions as 
That's it. Yeah. yeah, they'll they'll appear to be doing something when in fact they're reinforcing capitalism by saying we should make it easier for the rich to get richer while discouraging cooperative solutions. Right? They want to make sure that none of those tax breaks go to people that are trying to build actual affordable housing within their community that they can then run themselves and not get priced out of their homes. Yeah, nothing screams like an ideological tack either than saying, oh, yeah, on all new builds, except any that are cooperatively built. And then it's like, why? Please explain your decision to do that. I'd love to hear someone go on record and explain that. Well, because Santiago, only competition can solve the housing crisis. Jugmeat says... Competition, more competition is the answer to everything. Uh, telecoms, or grocery stores. Trudeau's now saying it's it's for housing. So I'm curious. What, I'm curious what they would say though. You know, I'd love to see a journalist go up to them and ask them, "Hey, uh, interesting plan here, uh, but I'm curious why are cooperatives excluded from this tax break? Can you please explain the logic and reasoning behind such a decision? Because I would love to see them try and spin them. Like I'm sure they're gonna like do the whole non-answer answer thing where they just talk about they're they're gonna say something along the lines of, well, you know, these tax breaks are gonna be uh, greatly helpful to help relieve the yada yada and da 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 da, and they're not even gonna answer it. But I'd just love to see them sweat for a second. No, you'd have to get Jeremy Appel in the scrum there in order to get that question asked or maybe sneak him into the next caucus meeting. But I would like to hear the answer to that because I think they would have a lot of stuttering involved before they could come up with something feasible. But we know we know what it's about. You don't you don't even want to hear their answer because it's just going to make you mad. I was I was typing my notes for this. I was swearing out loud and everyone in the house was like, what's the matter? (laughs) Because it really upset me the fact that it's, again, it's one of these trends. So the feds do it. They're openly telling provinces you should do it. And the provinces are pressuring the municipalities to all do it. And none of it is going to help the housing crisis. Because you got to remember, international students are the ones causing the housing crisis. So if we don't address, like, everyone knows that I'm being completely facetious. And that's one of our pet peeves here on the show is the amount of scapegoating that goes towards new Canadians, migrant workers, and international students. It's getting old. We're seeing it on both sides of the spectrum, unfortunately. Been, that's been the narrative that I've been seeing a lot the last couple of weeks since the semester gets kicked off. Everyone's talking about like the record number of international students and how uh, this is a crisis for housing and how they're taking up all the housing. And it's like, okay, hold on a second. Who exactly, like, what do you think is going on here? You think, like, a bunch of kids from who whose parents just sold their farm to be able to send them to live in a house where there's, like, seven people in every single room and they're having to, like, take under-the-table jobs because they don't get to work enough hours and they're being exploited and being paid below minimum wage and... I've seen like $800 for a bed where there's five other beds in the basement. Like, you think these are the people to blame for the housing crisis? When also, for the record, why are they here? Because the colleges are out here making record profits uh, off of international students. There was a report that like international students from India alone, I believe, now account for more money for the colleges than 
domestic students. Yeah, we should do a whole episode on international students because people get that impression that they're rich kids, right? Who else could afford to send their kid across the world to go to a university that's going to charge 10, 20 times the cost of tuition? That's not the reality, though, anymore. So here's somewhere where where I have a lot of personal experience because I'm, I'm, at, I'm at Humber North campus, which is like, I believe it's the campus that has like the most international students of all the colleges in Ontario. Yeah, no, d- these are not rich kids whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, the rich, the, there's rich kids in UFT, don't get me wrong. And, um, but no, these are primarily poor students who, like I said, they come from housing, uh, from farming towns uh, in, in regions such as like Punjab in India where, you know, they, recruiters go to them and tell them, if you go and you get an education in Canada, you're going to be able to make all of your dream come true and have money to send back to the parents. And so, and they tell them like, look how much wealth there is, look how much opportunity there is in Canada. So what do they do? They tell them, you know, get your parents to to bet the, literally bet the farm. Yep. Right. And and they they sell off all everything they have to send their kids to get a degree here where they end up with not not being it not being what they thought it was. And they end up with very little opportunity, no real path forward to any permanent resident status. Like this whole idea of sending money back home. That that that's one of the narratives that really fucking gets to me when we talk about the exploitation of migrants. Uh, whether or not it's international students or migrant workers, is you hear so often about how people sell it to them with this idea of you get to send money back home to your family. They're not out here doing this because they're trying to chase wealth. A lot of times it's like, my family is struggling. What do I do? I want to be able to help them. I do this. I get to send money back home. And it's a fucking lie. And so it's it's just the most disgusting type of exploitation. And it, it's only possible because, like we said, Canada has really good... Uh, PR, and I don't mean permanent residence, I mean public relations, like we have we have very good image that we profit off of internationally to make a shit ton of money off of both international students and migrant workers. And then they get scapegoated. Like, we just lied to them. Yeah. Not just for housing, but for the jobs, for the all sorts of things. Like a lot of the feedback I got to one of the videos I did on TikTok talking about the bakery workers that we did on, I think, a few rants ago out in Mississauga, a lot of the less decent responses were centered on the international students. Why are they working? They shouldn't be working. They're taking jobs. They deserve what they get. They're here illegally then if they're working. And that's just not the case. Like some of them are allowed to work, but others, it's by necessity. The cost of housing, they're suffering under it too. And they're suffering more. Yeah, the whole because they're being thrown into conditions that are unthinkable. Like most people would not accept living in a room with seven other people in just one bedroom. You know, like most people would that that doesn't even cross your mind as an option. And it's not just like random people on the Internet that are doing the scapegoating. Two of the articles that I pulled to talk about the liberal affordability plan on the housing issue specifically mentioned international students as a strain on the housing situation. And that's scary when this type of scapegoat 
scapegoating hits mainstream and really gets anchored in the narratives around critical issues like housing or jobs. This leads to bad news. So we've kind of transitioned from housing half measures to the scapegoating that goes around it. But in the end, it all circles back to our governments doing little to nothing to address the housing crisis while stepping out in front of us and declaring that they've come up with plans. So I hope that provides a little bit clearer perspective on these so-called advancements that hit the news this week. Clearly, we're not satisfied. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.